morning, Chapel Hill. Great to be with you this morning. Thank you for making worship a priority on this uh, Sabbath. Glad that we can celebrate worldwide communion with our brothers and sisters across the globe who love Jesus, and they might use different bread and different juice, but uh, together we are reminded of the fact that we're part of a larger body than this, but I'm glad you are here for, for this part of the body of Christ. We are in a journey through a series that we are calling For the City, based upon what is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah. We're discovering Nehemiah as a great leader. And, uh, and I want to start this morning as we get ready to dive into Nehemiah chapter 3 with a question uh, for you. How many of you have ever been to a commencement ceremony, a graduation ceremony? Raise your hand. Uh, Todd and all the other teachers are nodding their heads in pain. Uh, they're, they're brutal, honestly, really, aren't they? They're brutal. You sit down there and you look at a, a, bo- a program that has like a, a million names in it, and there's yours like three and a half hours down the list. So you sit there and sheer boredom as the names are intoned one after another, and finally, 10 seconds of personal pandemonium as you cheer the person that you are there for, although you're not supposed to cheer, but you do anyhow, and then you resume uh, the sheer boredom. It would be easy for you to turn to Nehemiah 3, maybe, and look at that long list of names and wonder, is that what we're in for today? A kind of a rehash of that? I mean, are we going to really sit through this long list of names? Well, you're going to sit through part of them, uh, but I would love to have you see that uh, chapter in a different light. If you walked out of our uh, doors here and looked to the left, you'd see a, a cornerstone at the base of our building that uh, represents the, the, the thousands of people who gave and sacrificed to build this building to the glory of God and for the serving of our uh, community. We don't have any names listed on there, but it represents all of those names. Well, Nehemiah went one step further. He said, I want to list the names. I want to name all of the families that stepped up and helped me do what appeared to be an impossible thing. I want to honor them in perpetuity for their faithfulness to this call of God. So I would like for you to listen to those names in a different way and look for some of the nuggets that I think are in there and that are going to help us understand, continue to understand what Nehemiah is mentoring us to do in our own passion for blessing our city. Let me remind you where we are. Uh, Nehemiah is a, is a Jew who was living in Babylonia and Babylon, and, uh, and he was called, he had an epiphany, and he's called by God to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the city walls, which have, have laid in, in, uh, in rubble for 150 years. Uh, you didn't have any walls in those days, you didn't have any city, and, and this was the vision that Nehemiah had. And last week we saw Nehemiah as he took a handful of influencers, key leaders, and said, I want you to walk around and let's look together at these walls. And at the end of that tour, in the middle of the night, they were doing it secretly, Nehemiah, we see the brilliance of him as a leader because suddenly his vision has become their vision. They see the reason. They see the possibility. They see the dream of a different future than they've never imagined before. And suddenly they are saying, let us rise up and build. So that was in chapter 2. Now we come to chapter 3 and we discover how we put that vision into reality. Like I said, I think there's some nuggets to be found here. I want you to listen. Listen for anything that's of interest to you because I'm going to try to find some stuff that's interesting to me and I hope that uh, I hope it will speak to you out of this long list of, of names. So here we go. It, it's Nehemiah chapter um, 3. You'll find it in page 399 of your pew Bible. And uh, it's kind of an abbreviated version. 
We'll do about half of it. So buckle up. Here we go for the most scintillating scripture reading you have ever heard. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. Parenthetically, I think the people of Jericho knew something about walls, right? And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. And then the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. Next to them, Meshalem, the son of Barakiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. Next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yeshana. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranthonite, the men of Gibeon and of Mitzpah. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaph, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabneah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section. And the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters Hanan and the inhabitants of Zanoa repaired the valley gate and a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malkijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> Anyone see something kind of interesting? Anything that jumped out at you? Okay, I've got my work cut out for me, then don't I? Well, I'm going to say it anyhow. This is the word of the Lord. There we go. Now let's see what God's going to say to us through that. All right, let's pray. Father, would you take this word that may seem a little pedestrian to us, but make it come to life. May we be inspired as we read the story of our four parents who rose to a new vision to restore their city. May we likewise be inspired and may we rise up and build. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a look on the screen. These are pictures of a wall that I'm going to be standing in front of. But I and a few of my friends from Chapel Hill in about a month, we're going to be standing at the base of the wall of the old city of Jerusalem. These walls uh, actually are relatively young. They were only built in the 1500s. Uh, by Jerusalem standards, that's not very old. But many of those walls still sit on the foundation that was laid much, much earlier than this. And I include them up here just for you to get an idea of the scope, of the magnitude. Uh, when you're talking about the walls that surrounded Jerusalem, this is what you're talking about. How high and how wide and how long. They are, they are awesome. Now, I want you to imagine that those walls, those stones that are so nicely stacked there, have in fact been torn down. And they lie in a heap around the outside of the city. That was the state of the city when Nehemiah came and made his thousand-mile trek from Susa. 
And it was the rebuilding of those walls to which Nehemiah was called. He viewed his job as helping the people who had lived in rubble, who had grown used to living in their rubble. He viewed his job as helping them to catch a glimpse of a new future, a new vision that they had never imagined was possible. And he viewed his job as helping them make that vision happen, which involved dividing that huge wall up into 41 chunks. If you were to go home, and I'm sure you will tonight, go home and read chapter 3 and meditate on every single verse in there, you would discover there are 41 chunks, 41 build teams that are mentioned there that divided that big wall up into more bite-sized chunks. And if you pay careful attention, if you allow yourself to kind of get past the unusual names that you hear rattled off, you begin to discover some really inspiring stories along the way as well as one huge disappointment. Let's start with what's inspiring. First of all, did you notice who is the very first one named by Nehemiah as a a builder? The high priest. Did you see that? Eliashib, the high priest. This is something. The high priest was the most esteemed person in Jerusalem. He had the most influence of of anyone. This honored, dignified man who had this important role of standing before God's people in the temple. We don't know if Eliashib toured the ruins of the wall with Nehemiah on their midnight run that night. But somehow between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, Nehemiah had captured the heart of the leader of their people. And, you know, speed of the leader, speed of the team. So suddenly Eliashib was in. And you got to say, good for him, right? Good for this guy who ordinarily has this role that's full of pomp and circumstance. Good for him to be willing to strip off the garments of his office and put on his work clothes and get dirty. That's humility. That's inspiring. That's great leadership. And it's certainly a reflection of the humble heart of our great high priest, Jesus, isn't it? The New Testament speaks again and again, I think with some amazement, at the idea of the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who would abandon his place in glory, abandon his place next to his Father, empty himself, and take on the form of a servant, as Philippians puts it. It speaks with amazement of the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve who deigned to touch the rotten flesh of the leper, who deigned to kneel down and wash the filthy feet of his disciples, a task ordinarily reserved for the lowest slave on the totem pole. There's nothing highfalutin about the call to Christian leadership if we pay attention to the supreme Christian leader, our Lord Jesus himself. There's nothing that we preachers or elders or deacons should be willing to ask of you that if we're not willing to do it first ourselves, we are called to lead, not to Lord. And that means that's one of the reasons that I choose to share my vulnerabilities, my failures in my own spiritual journeys as we talk through these sermons and especially here as I talk about what it means for me to move out of my introversion and into loving and blessing the the city that the Lord has called me to care for. You have every right and every reason to expect that your leaders should walk their talk. And I hope that when you see us doing it, it will inspire you to join us in whatever that journey might be. I love the fact that the high priest is the first guy I mentioned. Let me go off script for a second because there's another thing in that very first verse that I love. Did you notice the very first gate that is restored? 
The sheep gate. The sheep gate. You say, big deal. Ah, it was a big deal. Why did the high priest choose the sheep gate to start with? You'll also notice it's the only one that's consecrated. If you go clear down chapter 3, that's the only section that they pause. And they have a worship service to celebrate the consecration of the new sheep gate. Why is that? Because it was the sheep gate that was closest to the temple and through which they led the sacrificial lambs that were taken to the altar so that they might be slaughtered so that the, the, the restoration of God and his relationship with his people could take place. Right from the beginning then, the very first act of restoration is a reminder that Jerusalem was God's city. It was filled with God's people. And its purpose was to restore them into relationship with him. That's what the Sheep Gate was all about. And it reminds us that Gig Harbor, Port Orchard, whatever our city is, that's God's city. God's people. He longs to restore them to relationship with him. And he will do that only through the shed blood of the great Lamb of God. All right, back Back on to, back on the script. There's something else that I notice that I find really interesting, and that is that everybody here had a part to play, no matter who they were, no matter how gifted they were, no matter how buff they were. Everyone seemed to have a part to play. Some of these guys, you know, had to be construction workers when they were doing their their twelve their regular day job. The citizens of Zenoa, we are told. For, they, they built 500 yards of wall, 1,000 cubits. That's a, about a third of a mile of a wall, one group. There are other groups, that seven other groups that are mentioned as having finished their section, and they're so inspired, they go to Nehemiah and say, give us another one, boss, we want to do another one. And so they do. They, these, these people, they were just knocking out the work. I've been to Mexico with the high school group eight times, and I remember nearly every time I went, no matter how hard we other, our other house teams built, we could never beat Bart Brinstad. Bart Brinstad's team was always the fastest team. They were always getting it done before everyone else, no matter what we tried. And so they'd be finished up, and then they'd come around, and, and they're helping the rest of us catch up to them. Hanan and his team from Zenoa, they were Nehemiah's Bart Brinstad. They were the, the wall-building machine. But there are others who are mentioned in this text for whom schlepping rocks may not have seemed to come naturally to them. In verse 12, for instance, we meet a guy named Shalom. He's a ruler of a Hasp district of Jerusalem. So this is his turf. He's got skin in the game. He's... he's Rebuilding his city that he's responsible for. Problem is, Shalom doesn't have any sons. He can't build a, a build team like the rest of the men do who have brought all their sons together. He only had daughters, and of course, daughters couldn't be a part of doing construction work, right? Not so right. Verse 12, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, the ruler of the Hasp district of, of Jerusalem, repaired a section. He and his daughters. Girl power! I love that. I have a daughter, Rachel. You know her. She would have been standing on top of the wall with a hammer. And I tell you, when I was in Mexico, I loved having freshman girls because, man, they were the hardest working bunch you'd ever find. Their culture cried, you have only daughters. What are you going to do? You can't help. God declared, Shalom, today your daughters are wall builders. And they were. Then there was Uziel. Did you see him? He's the goldsmith. He's a craftsman. He has an artist's eye and a, a gentle touch. 
He could create exquisite pieces of art out of gold with the most delicate of tools. And Uziel says, but Lord, I'm a goldsmith. I don't work with boulders. And God said, Uziel, today you are a wall builder. And he was. And living right next to Uziel was a guy named Hananiah. He was a perfumer. In a world that was smelly and rotten, Hananiah produced ointments that disguised some of that stink and that made life just a little bit prettier. Hananiah said, Lord, I don't work with heavy timbers. I'm a perfume maker. God said, Hananiah, today you are a wall builder. And he was. Uziel and Hananiah, they never made the Jerusalem Warriors football team. They were the gentle artistic souls who delighted in creating beautiful things. They're not exactly the type that you would recruit for a construction crew. But here they are in verse 8, laboring side by side, repairing their two parts of the wall. And I'll bet it was the most beautiful section of wall in the city, don't you? Have you ever used this excuse? That's not my spiritual gift. That's not my area of gifting. As a reason to get out of doing something that you find difficult or distasteful. This goldsmith and this perfumer teach us that sometimes God says, I don't need your expertise. I need your obedience. I need your willingness to get your hands dirty. That's what I need from you. There were all of these people gathered together, great and small, strong and weak, gifted and clueless, influential and inconsequential, all of them working together side by side with this vision of restoring Jerusalem, with this vision of restoring God's people. Chapter 3 is that cornerstone that honors everyone who worked to accomplish this miracle of restoration. Everyone, that is, who was willing to do the hard work, no matter how much they could do, they did it. All except for one group. Did you notice? Did, who, who, who was the one group? Yep, Tekoa. Verse 5. And next to Zadok, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Their nobles would not stoop. To serve their Lord. Of all the names that are memorialized in chapter 3, the nobles of Tekoa are the only ones who are mentioned because they did not work. They did not join in the labor. Perhaps they considered it too menial. It was beneath them. Maybe they didn't like taking orders from a commoner. They were, after all, nobles. Or maybe they were, as I described last week, the guardians of the rubble. They liked their mess the way it was because they were in charge. Whatever the reason was, the nobles of Tekoa raised their noses in contempt and did not raise a hand to help. What's really fun is if you look down to the last part of the chapter, verse 27, there's a little postscript to the story of these snooty noblemen. We read that the Tekoites repaired another section opposite of the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. What happened when the leaders of Tekoa refused to lead? Others stepped into their place. The nobles would not work. There was a vacuum of leadership. And so God raised up others who would make it happen. And the people of Tekoa who had been raised up were so excited about it. They said, give us another one. We are on a roll. 
So what's the moral of this story? In the work of Jesus, lead, follow, or get out of the way. The body of Christ always does its work. And if the persons who are blessed with authority will not exercise that authority, if they will not use their God-given gifts to lead, then God will take away that authority and give it to someone who will lead. And like the nobles of Tekoa, you'll be left watching at the sideline as the rest of the people of God accomplish great things. You might have noticed I didn't start my sermon as I have the last few weeks. The last few weeks I've been urging you, this week, would you try to see with new eyes? Would you pay attention to things you don't pay attention to? Would you write them down? Would you pray? And we've given you all kinds of tools to help you, haven't we? T-shirts and decals and an app. And, and then last week, this part, prayer card, the For the City prayer card, which now, hey, I have five names on there that I have noticed, people I've noticed and I'm, I'm lifting up. So we are trying to be very intentional and we know that people remember and they, they learn in different ways. But we're trying to get all of us to do the same thing, which is to see the city with God's eyes. To love the city with God's heart. To notice things, notice people in ways that we've never done before. We will never be a part of change and transformation if we don't first see it. And to my delight, I've watched this week after week. Many of you have raised your hand and said, yes, I am doing it. I'm beginning to hear the stories from you. And that's wonderful. But could I also say this? Hundreds of you have not. Hundreds of you have not raised your hand yet. And if that is you this morning, after four weeks now, as we are reading this story of all of the people who joined in to, to do their part to restore Jerusalem, and that handful who did not, I want you to reflect on this question. Why haven't I raised my hand? I'm not trying to shame you. I'm trying to get you to grapple with that question, to ask yourself. Let the Spirit speak to your heart. Because there are people in this body who never raise their hand. They never offer to lead. They never offer to volunteer. They never offer to pray. They never offer to give. They never offer to invite. They never offer to pitch in in any way. They just come and consume and leave. And, and maybe you're one of those. Perhaps you feel unworthy. Perhaps you feel uncomfortable. Perhaps you feel indifferent. Perhaps you feel entitled. Perhaps you assume that the others will do it, that others will carry your load. And by the way, we will. We always do. But if we could just capture the vision of everyone, everyone working side by side, shoulder to shoulder, doing their part, large and small, everyone caring for their city, everyone noticing and loving their neighbors, everyone praying God's favor and blessing upon their city, how much more could God do through us? So one of the questions I think this passage begs is, what will it take for you to one day raise your hand too? We are sitting here this morning in a wonderful image of shoulder to shoulder to shoulder. Each of us very different. Each of us essential to the work of Christ. Each of us a part of the body of Christ. We're, prob- we're a group we'd probably never otherwise hang out together, and yet God in his Design brings us all together to be a part of his family. And in a moment, we're going to pass the elements one to another. We're going to pass the bread. We're going to pass the juice. And we're going to say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Jesus shed for you, shoulder to shoulder, passing it on. But imagine this for a moment. 
What if the guy next to you in your pew receives the bread, receives the juice, takes their bread, takes their juice, eats, drinks, and just holds on to the rest of it? Doesn't pass it on. You say, hey, what's going on? He says, I got mine. It would be, uh, you would be un- uh, outraged. It would be a, a breach of our covenant. It would be a breaking of the unity, the communion that we call this. In the moment, every one of us must do our part. We must pass on the elements one to another to another so that all that might be nourished by the feast of the Lord. And in that very same way, every one of us is essential. Every one of us has an essential part to play in the redemptive work that God wants to do in blessing our city. And so as you receive this tangible demonstration of the servant's heart of Jesus, the the beloved Lamb of God who sacrificed himself that you might have a relationship with the Father. As you receive this today and pass it on to your brothers and sisters, would you think about that? When am I going to raise my hand? When am I going to say yes to God's invitation to be a part of what God is doing? Pray about that. Think about that as you receive this meal. This is a a regular reminder, this meal that we share, of the Lamb of God, the supreme Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The the Lamb of God who willingly gave up his life. The, The Lamb of God who left eternity and came to serve us in the most menial of ways, who humbled himself so that we might be exalted. That's what we are coming here to do, to remember. It's such a simple meal. Jesus could have used really expensive products, but instead he just put bread and juice. Everybody had it. He said, because I want everyone to be a part of it. I want everyone to eat, everyone to drink, everyone to remember, everyone to share in what I'm doing. On that night, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this, this bread, this bread is, is my body broken for you. I want you to take it, and when you do, I want you to remember what I did for you when, I, when my body was broken on the cross. And then he took the cup after supper, and he poured it out, and he gave it to them and said, this, this cup, this, this purple juice, it represents my, my blood, which is going to be poured out for you in a moment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shed my blood to, to wash you clean like the sacrificial lambs the last centuries but it will be once and for all and forever and so as often as we eat this bread Paul says and we drink this cup we remember what Jesus has done we proclaim his death and, and the salvation that comes to us for those who receive the gift of, of his death and his resurrection we proclaim his death until the day when the king of kings returns to us and so I invite you today to really reflect on what we've read today in the scripture. To really think about what it means for me to raise my hand and say, I'm in. I want to be a part of, of sharing this good news, of blessing this city that you love God. I want to love the city the way you love it. I want to love your people the way you love them. And this is the starting point, the reminder of what Christ has done for us. And the change that is wrought in our lives because the spirit lives within us. So I'm going to invite our elders and our deacons to come forward and and I'm going to pray over these elements. 
Holy God, we thank you for the the gift of communion that is before us here, and we pray that your spirit would bless it and consecrate it. Would you take these very common elements and set them aside for a holy purpose? Not magical, but mysterious. How is it that the Lamb of God meets us, nourishes us in this meal? And so would you be with us this day? Would you meet us in this moment? As we pass these elements one to another, would you link our hearts, remind us of our called and common mission as we share the bread, as we share the juice. May it be an image of what we will do when we walk out of these doors and say together, arm in arm, shoulder in shoulder, we will do our part to bless the city that you love, God. Holy Spirit, would you do that work now, we pray. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. And grant us your peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.